This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Denver has a plan to house 250 of the city's most chronically homeless. That's the kind of project that's usually paid for by the government. This time, investors will pick up some of the bill. If it works, the city has to pay the money back with a profit. If it doesn't, investors lose most of their money. Denver's chief financial officer, Carrie Kennedy, is leading the effort. Also with us is Tyler Jekyll. He's with Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and an expert on this type of public-private funding, which is becoming increasingly popular across the country. Carrie, Tyler, welcome. Thank you, Andrea. Good morning. And before we get started, just a shout out to our Denver Broncos championship uh, last I'm night. I'm glad you mentioned that. Thanks so much. Well, let's move on to uh, this subject and let's talk about how you plan first to help the chronically homeless. Carrie. Sure. Thanks, Andrea. So Mayor Hancock, uh, during his term in office, has focused on housing affordability. And housing the homeless is a particular emphasis of the mayors to really help the people who are living on Denver streets move into permanent supportive housing. So this is an opportunity for 250 individuals who we see every day on the 16th Street Mall and and throughout our city uh, living on street corners to be able to move into permanent supportive housing. And how do you describe the chronically homeless? We have several thousand homeless individuals in Denver, but about 800 of them are chronically homeless. More than half of them suffer from severe mental illness, and many of them also suffer from addiction. And um, Tyler, why focus on this particular group of homeless people? Well, there's two reasons. The first is, I mean, I think we have um, real as a nation, a, a behavioral health crisis that cities are really taking an initiative on. And I think this is really representing De- Denver taking the really first step um, or a large step to really address that issue. And the second, from more of a financial perspective, is these individuals cost the city and taxpayers an enormous amount when we do nothing. And we know that if we actually do permanent supportive housing with intensive case management, um, it's been proven to, one, reduce costs, but also provide individuals with the treatment and resources they need to live healthy and productive lives. And Carrie, the housing would be spread across the city. Your hope uh, is that providing housing would be cheaper, as Tyler said. And how confident are you that this would save money? It is. What we know, Andrea, is that it is less expensive to move these individuals into housing than it is to have them living on Denver streets. For for this population of 250 chronically homeless, they spend 14,000 nights a year in the Denver jail. Mm. They spend over 2,000 days in our detox um, services. They're arrested over 1,500 times, and they visit the emergency room over 500 times a year. So these individuals are costing Denver's taxpayers over $7 million a year. And we spend that year after year after year, and yet the individuals don't get any better. They continue to be on the streets and cycling through our criminal justice system, taking up jail bed days, taking up precious space and resources in our safety net system. We know from research around the country that for less money, we can have them stably housed and get them out of the criminal justice system. 
And Tyler, let's talk briefly about how the funding works. We'll come back to the conversation a bit later. But you have a five-year, $8.7 million investment lined up. The money will come from Northern Trust Bank, along with several foundations. And other money, you'll get public funding. Um, If the program works, how will investors make a profit? Yeah, so from the government perspective, the government is paying for outcomes. So in in essence, we're doing a 100% performance-based contract. Um, There's two real measures that we're looking at. Number one, do people stay stably housed? Do they stay in their housing situation for a year or more and stay housed after that point? Um, The second is, do you actually see a reduction um, in the utilization of jail? So do jail bed days go down? And if either of those two measures or both of those measures are met um, and go up, then investors will, one, see their principal come back and also potentially see a return. Um, the returns aren't large, so we don't have investors that are looking for a very large profit here but are also doing it because they deeply care about the issues. Um, so at kind of what we've seen studies across the country, um, the expected return maybe would be around a 3% annualized interest rate. Um, And we'll come back to how the program will be evaluated in a moment. Um, Tyler, Carrie, thanks for being with us. Um, Carrie Kennedy is Denver's chief financial officer. She heads up Denver's new program to house 250 chronically homeless people with the help of private funders. Tyler Jekyll is with Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's helping with the project. It recently won approval from the city council and launches this month. We'll be back to talk more in a few minutes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking with Carrie Kennedy, Denver's chief financial officer. Also with us is Tyler Jekyll, who's with Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. The two have enlisted private investors to help the city house 250 of its most chronically homeless. One goal is to figure out if the city can save money by people ke- keeping people in housing and out of shelters, jails, and emergency rooms. Private companies and foundations will foot much of the bill. If the program's successful, the backers make a profit. If it fails, they lose money. Welcome back. Thank you, Andrea. Tyler, the investors, as we said, make money if the program's considered successful. But who determines success? Absolutely. So first, I want to say that this is a really unique deal that we have a lot of um, local support for this. So the Denver Foundation, the Colorado Health Foundation, the Piton Foundation, and the Ben and Lucille Walton Fund at the Walton Foundation all are supporting this. And payment is really determined by the Urban Institute, which is a national research institution that have done a lot of evaluations across the country. Um, And this will probably be one of perhaps the, the longest and most rigorous studies of supportive housing in the country. And so they will both determine kind of if there was an actual reduction in jail um, from the people actually receiving the program services and then compared to those that don't, as well as did the people in the program actually stay housed or not. And that will be over the course of the five-year period. Isn't there a little gray area here when determining success? Um Not really. I mean, this is the best of social science research that we can have. So um, with kind of any of these studies, yes, we can't get to finite. Did we know that exactly X or Y happened? But really using these evaluation techniques, especially the ones in the Denver SID project, you're really using the best tools that we have available to actually say, did this program succeed or not? 
And Carrie, when would investors lose money on this deal? So if the program's not successful and the taxpayers don't realize savings from these individuals, uh, reducing the number of nights they spend in jail, the number of times they go to detox, the number of times they go to the emergency room, if we don't realize savings in the criminal justice system, the investors don't get paid. So we will need to see at least 75% of these individuals stay stably housed and at least a 30% reduction in their jail bed days or the investors will lose principal. And how much do they stand to lose? They could lose all of it, Andrea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the point is, if the program does work, the city has to give extra to the investors. Could that be risky for the city? So the investors can make a small rate of return if the program is highly successful. So for example, we expect to see 83% of the individuals stably housed Mm -hmm. and at least a 40% reduction in the number of nights that they spend in jail. That's the likely outcome that we would expect from national research. And in that situation, our investors will make 3.4% return on their money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, Tyler, these kinds of funding agreements, public projects paid for with private money, are pretty unique. Um, They're often called pay-for-success contracts or social impact bonds. You work at the Kennedy School of Government, and you help local governments with these kinds of projects. Denver would be only the ninth, I believe, in the country to try it out. Have they been successful in other cities? Sure. And so we'd be the ninth in the country. And the first one was really in Peterborough in the in the UK. And success, we're kind of at the early stages. So not all of the contracts have gone through completion. But I think what you've seen to be really successful, one, in the first social impact bond, they chose not to go the, the entire year of the program and actually expand the program through traditional governor, government resources to the entire country. Um, in New York City, you saw the program actually not reach the point where um, they would reach um, their principal payment back or even anything higher than that. So for the government, it was actually um, kind of successful in the way that it actually transferred risk away from the government and onto private hands. But I think where we've seen the most success is that this is a unique tool that gets a lot of parties all to the table, all trying to figure out what are the best solutions to social problems. And I think that in of itself has been a unique opportunity and already has spurred government innovation in ways that I didn't think we expected when we first started the programs. And for groups putting up the money, is this a charity or is it an investment opportunity for them? So there's, and I'll let Carrie give her great phrase um, when it comes to a lot of foundations. Um, Carrie, I'll. I'll... It, Andrea, it's both. So a foundation that makes a grant, the return on that money is negative 100%. This is an opportunity to accomplish a social objective, but have the potential to return their resources and reinvest them back into the community. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Carrie Kennedy is Denver's chief financial officer. Tyler Jekyll is with Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. In a few weeks, police and young minorities will sit down in Denver to talk.
The city's holding workshops to try to diffuse tensions that have been brewing in Metro Denver and across the country. We visited one of those sessions a while back and listened in on some very personal conversations. About 10 cops came to the forum and about 60 young people. After talking in small groups, they compared notes. Okay, and so each group will also share the tips that you came up with for youth and tips you came up with for officers. So which group wants to go first? You guys will? All right. We weren't allowed to record the group sessions for privacy reasons, but afterwards I sat down with Officer Denise Gomez and two young people, 17-year-old Adiante Thompson and David Rodriguez, who's 19. Both Thompson and Rodriguez came with the organization GRASP, Gang Rescue and Support Group. It helps young people in Metro Denver who are in gangs or at risk of joining a gang. I asked Thompson what he got out of the session. I got out of this like that. Not all officers are bad. Not ever, all the officers are the same. They're people like us too, so all officers are different. David, talk about what you learned today from being at this forum. Well, what I learned today is that cops do the things they do for a certain reason, for their safety and for the safety of the public around around them. You know how you said not all cops are bad. You know they're just the reason they're doing it is because you know they get calls and you know it's not because. You're you're a gangbanger, you know, she's like, going to stop you. You know, there's a reason why she is stopping you for that specific reason. Officer Gomez, these two were in your group today. And I wonder what you might have learned from that. Well, they were in my group today, and I actually learned their perspective. I think one of the people in the class said that when they get contacted by officers, the first thought is, am I going to go to jail or am I going to die? And once when you approach youth, maybe to keep that in mind, that they're afraid of what's going to happen. So I would say to officers, keep in mind if if they act a little bit aggressive towards you or maybe not the word aggressive, but, you know, use some words maybe they shouldn't to keep in mind that they're scared. What's an example of how you might behave differently having learned what you learned today from these guys? Well, I think I'll always have to keep my safety in mind whenever I approach anybody, whether it be a youth or an adult. But... I think probably not taking it as personal if they're not articulating their feelings correctly towards me when I'm walking up to them and keeping in mind that they're scared will help me to not be as um, heightened when I see that they're that I'm perceiving them to act aggressive. Adiante, I wonder if you've had an interaction with an officer before that didn't go very well, that made you perhaps scared of officers or uncomfortable. Well, um, for me, specifically, I have not had a bad intercation with a, with a police officer, but I've seen what happens with officers and with them and stuff, and it's like, it makes it made me look at officers different. It made me look at officers like they wasn't out to protect and serve us. They're taking their job as an advantage, using their job as an advantage, because they got the higher authority than we do. So, but today, talking to Officer Denise, it made me realize that she's not out there, a lot of officers aren't out there to just, like, target us. They're out there to do their job. And, David, can you talk about any interactions you've had with police in the past that made you feel like cops weren't out for your best interest? Well, one of the interactions I had was that we never knew this guy was following us. And then we called 911, you know, because me and my other friend, Renee, we were afraid of the other guy. We didn't know what he was capable of. So we went behind a school. So when the cop came, 
he was like, well, this guy just called us, letting us know that you stole this mail, and I believe it more than you. You know, at that time, I felt discriminated towards me, you know. And once all the situation was handled, you know, they did a lockdown in school. They, you know, made a big deal about it that we didn't even do about. So when he was about to leave, he was like, well, you shouldn't be in this country, you know, and that's where I felt that discrimination towards me and the Hispanic people, you know. That's, and it's just not that, too, you know. I had a cousin, too, that... um they they went up to his house and they, you know they were gonna they were trying to fight him and then he called the cops and the cops arrested him for being a Hispanic person when the people who were going at him were white so the white people had more majority of getting believed than the Hispanic people of some cops you know don't have that that same mentality you know as other cops you know some cops listen both of the stories you know but in that situation that cop only listened to the white people and not to the colored people you know and that's what something I didn't, you know, like. So that's what changed my opinion on cops. I wonder, Officer Gomez, if you've had any interactions with youth that scared you or made you feel uncomfortable. I'd say that I've had a lot of interactions with youth that have made me very uncomfortable. It's very difficult when you're get called somewhere or you're told to patrol an area and contact people because they're smoking marijuana or, or whatever in public and you go to contact them and they start circ- trying to encircle you, calling you names, trying to intimidate you in their own way. That's very difficult because it makes you feel very unsafe as an officer. Um, the reason I like this class is because I think we need to learn mutual respect. And I think that the youth, they need to understand why we do what we do. And also officers who may not have done something right need to maybe reevaluate. Nobody's perfect. In any situation that somebody talks about, there's always two sides of the story, but we just need to meet in the middle somewhere. Ariante and David, I'm curious if Officer Gomez said anything that maybe made you understand her perspective a little better. <clears throat> She's like, she told us that like, coming in certain situations, she never know what can happen. And so it's like she's uncomfortable already going to that situation because she don't know what we're capable of. She don't know what we got on her. So she, like she said, she automatically calls for backup because she don't know if, if I have a gun and she's by herself and I have a gun. We, we're, both, we're scared of each other. David, how about you? Did Officer Gomez say anything that really stuck in your head? What stuck in my head was that, you know, sometimes they're afraid of the job, what they're doing. So, you know, she's a... She's a mo- single mother, you know, and she wants to go back to her kids, you know, and she's trying to make it home safe. That's what stuck up to me, you know, the reasons why sometimes they have to take action towards the people, you know, because they're trying to take um, make it home safe to their families, you know, to provide for them and be with them, you know, because they could, you know, be in a situation where, you know, they pull over someone and how she said, you know, it might be a granny, but the granny could, you know, shoot at her. So it's just they're, that's why they take action how the way they take action. We're speaking with Denise Gomez, a Denver police officer. Also with us are Adiante Thompson and David Rodriguez. They recently attended a workshop that brings together young people and police. It was organized by Denver's Office of the Independent Monitor, the civilian oversight agency for the city's police and sheriff's departments. We'll be back after a break to talk about what kind of advice David Rodriguez says his mother gave him about how to interact with police. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
You're back with CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're talking about efforts to get police and young minorities together simply to talk. The city's holding several workshops to try to ease tensions. One's coming up at the end of the month. I went to one of these workshops and listened to some of the conversations. There were about 10 cops there and about 60 young people. Let's get back to my conversation with some of the participants. I spoke with Officer Denise Gomez, along with 17-year-old Adiante Thompson and 19-year-old David Rodriguez. Both Thompson and Rodriguez came with an anti-gang group called GRASP. I asked David if he'd ever have a com- had a conversation with his parents about what to do if he came in contact with a police officer. My mom had conversations with me, you know, of how to take precaution, you know, because she's been looking at the news, you know, of situations that's been happening with cop brutality and, you know, some police officers, you know, taking down students, you know. She's like, well, when a police officer tells you to do something, just do it because you're not going to know how he's going to take it out on you. She said, just follow what they say and you should be fine. You know, and if something happens like that, you know, there's always, you know, court, you know, there's some other steps we could take after the situation happened. What about you, Ariante? Did you ever have a conversation with your parents about police officers? Mm, I haven't. This morning, you all came in and you didn't know each other. How do you feel differently about each other from this morning um, to this afternoon when you've spent the whole day together? You know, I work a lot with the youth actually now because I am a community liaison and I feel that I take that as one of my projects because I want the youth to see that we're human and I will also want want to see where they're coming from. So when I come in, I I do, I mean, I look at everybody, I I look at what they're wearing, of course, because I'm human, we all do that, but I try really hard not to have a bias against them. And I try really hard to see it from their perspective. Even sometimes if they say something that might feel insulting to me, <laughs> I still try to just just swallow it and fine, just listen to what they have to say. So I don't know. I, I like them. They're good guys. I like, you know, I like talking to them and hearing their perspective. And I hope they feel the same about me. Well, at first I didn't want to come, you know, because, like, man, they're just cops, you know, they're going to give us all that, you know, bull crap, you know. But when, once, you know, I met, you know, Officer Gomez, you know, it just you know, made me change my whole perspective about cops, you know, something, you know, everybody learns something new every day, you know, so something new I learned today was that not all cops are the same, you know, they have different mentalities than others, you know, it's just, that's their job, you know, to keep the community safe, and they do what they do for a certain reason. Adiante? Um, well, like, I wanted to come here, because I wanted to know both sides of the story, how officers look at us, and how we look at officers, you know, everybody's different, and everybody got different opinions, so now, when I leave and I see officers on the street, like, we, we learned our rights today. We learned all of our rights. We know what to say, what to do, and how to act when we're around officers. So me seeing an officer out on the street now, it's like he can either be one of those good cops or he could be one of those bad cops. And you would never know until you have that interaction with the police officer. So that's why I came. Uh, officer Gomez, what brought you here today? Well, it's gotten to the point where it's dangerous, where... An officer will walk up to a youth who um, is doing something that is against the law or an officer has reasonable suspicion to believe that they've done something. So they're contacting them and on solid ground and the youth are not listening. They're saying, you know, I can't say it on public radio what they say, but they call names. They try to walk away or run or fight. And it's very dangerous for the youth and the officers. So for me, I just hope that by doing this, we can make an impact with all 
officers and youth so that we can learn, like I said, that middle ground. I, can I ask a question? Do you guys feel, now that you have taken this class and spoke with officers, do you feel like it's going to be when an officer approaches you, you'll feel not scared? Or do you think you'll still be a little scared? I mean, I feel like we'll all, always be scared a little bit inside, but but now I know what to say and how to act rather than just following, like, like seeing a police officer and call them names or try to run and fight with them. I know how to act because, like I learned today, like, fighting with an officer can only make things worse. So if you just cooperate with the police, then it can end good or it can end bad. I'd like to add to that, you know. One thing that we tell the youth is that you don't know why the officer's contacting you, so just cooperate when they're contacting you. And if you feel like your rights have been violated, then go to internal affairs later. But don't make it a dangerous situation right there and be uncooperative. And David, what's your answer to Officer Gomez's question? I'm not, I'm still kind of be afraid, not as much as what I used to be, but I don't know what kind of police officers, I don't know if he's, you know, if he's a good one or a bad one, you know, I'm not going to know if he was having a bad days and, you know, he stopped me for because he was having a bad day, you know. But it's not going to be, I'm not going to be as, you know, afraid of thinking, you know, about running or doing something stupid because, you know, how he said, you know, we learned our rights, we know how to take precaution. But every everybody's going to still be afraid, you know, of when an officer approaches him. David Rodriguez is 19. Adiante Thompson is 17. Denise Gomez is a Denver police officer. The workshops for young people in Denver police are being run by the city's Office of the Independent Monitor. That's a civilian oversight agency for the police and sheriff's departments. The next workshop is at the end of the month. That's our show. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR's Colorado Matters.